This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Hi, Jim. Good to see you again. We've had uh, just as we did last time, a big response to our last couple of podcasts and indeed the stuff that we have both been writing. One of the comments from uh, Richie, no, you won't mind me using his name because it's there up on the Substack website, was talking about, again, how the balance between private indigenous, if you like, Irish developers, the way in which the playing field is tilted against them in favour of the investment funds. That side of the debate clearly is ongoing and needs to be teased out further. But he also raised an important point about how the public sector could get involved in a more serious way in property development via the Green Deal and all of the things that go around environmental considerations. Because one of the things that we know is that the house of the future is not going to look like the house of the past. Certainly here in the UK, there is talk of phasing out gas boilers for your central heating, for example, in the next few years and forcing people to or incentivizing people to install things like heat pumps and or geothermal uh, forms of heating, because the gas boiler according to this analysis, is the source of an awful lot of greenhouse emissions, as indeed it is. So I was wondering what you thought of all of this. There's the the ways in which the public sector can be encouraged to, A, get involved in a less populist way in the housing market, whether or not the Green Deal is an interesting route in your view. And I suppose more generally, whether or not you'd have any confidence that the public sector is up to it, Because again, another response that we got that I saw over the weekend was simply pointing out that certainly in the 
early part of this decade, maybe even the last part of the 20th century, it was the private sector that built all the houses and flats, mostly houses, in Ireland, and the public sector didn't. And that the idea that somehow or other the public sector could take on the role of the, of, of the private sector is fanciful at least if the history of the last couple of decades is is anything to go by. I suppose that just raises the question, yes, we have a need for much more housing, but who is going to build it if it isn't the private sector? So there's a lot there, Jim. I'll let you cherry pick which ones you want to deal with. Well, there is a lot there, all right, Chris. Um, the notion that the, the whole balance here has switched away from domestic developers towards foreign capital is definitely the case. Uh, but that is um, the result of a deliberate policy that was pursued by government after 2011-2012 when NAMA forced um, a lot of property developers out of the game. And indeed, all property developers, good, bad, indifferent ones, were all treated basically like tax cheats and they were demonized and you know they were treated in an abysmal fashion. And a lot of them were basically forced out of business and we're now wondering why we don't have the domestic private sector capacity to deliver the housing requirement that is required. Um, and at the same time, the government reached out to international investors to come in to help offload the assets that the National Asset Management Agency had and also to fund development, particularly of apartment blocks since then. Um, and suddenly, because it's become a political hot potato, uh, these investment funds, as I've spoken about before, have, in my view, been totally unjustifiably demonized. And I also think it is worth bearing in mind that the pu public sector does not have a great track record in terms of housing delivery in this country. I mean, there was a time decades ago, generations ago, when local authorities delivered public housing uh, but they lost all that capability over the years and are now basically do not have the capacity to deliver housing. So the onus is very much on the private sector developers to develop and deliver what is required. Um, so to be honest, Chris, I don't have a lot of faith in the public sector to step in to do what is needed to be done, because as I say, the track record is not good the history of intervention, particularly in recent times, is not good. However, um, I think it is important to bear in mind in relation to that comment about the green agenda. Um, under the Climate Action Bill, which has recently gone through the Irish um, Parliament, um, the a national climate objective has now been placed on a statutory basis. And, and that contains a lot of things, but... Actions from every sector in the economy will be detailed in the Climate Action Plan every year, and this is going to be updated annually. So there will be a requirement for future housing supply to be very much driven by the climate and um, carbon reduction agenda. So whether it's the public sector or the private sector is driving that, it is going to have to happen. And I suspect that the public sector will try and create the environment in which the private sector can actually deliver what is required. So I don't see the public sector as offering the panacea to indeed any of the problems in the housing market, to be honest. So I'm 
deeply skeptical about that sort of suggestion. But I, w- I would also, you know, fully accept the emailer made reference to Kate Raworth's book, Donut Economics. And uh, I-, I noticed that, you know, that book was written, I think, four or five years ago. And at this stage, it has definitely found its way into a lot of mainstream comment about um, environmental sustainability and economic sustainability. And, and within that, obviously, the delivery of housing um, is a key part of it. So I wouldn't have a problem with the concept. I'm just a little bit concerned about the ability of the public sector to actually um, intervene effectively in the marketplace. What strikes me there is is a comment that you made about economic history in Ireland, which is similar to the UK. The public sector in both jurisdictions, once upon a time, a long time ago now, did build a lot of houses. And so the question naturally arises in my mind anyway, what's to stop the public sector deciding that it will raise the necessary capital and deploy the necessary resources and build lots of houses itself and rent and sell them to um, individuals to solve the housing crisis, to simply build? What's to stop that from happening? I know that you say the capacity isn't there, the experience isn't there, the knowledge isn't there, but surely the public sector, if it so chose could do it if it wanted to, in principle at least. Yes, of, of course, the public sector could decide to step in and effectively become the national property developer. But I would just ask the question, why would the public sector do that? Surely, if you create the correct conditions for the private sector to deliver what needs to be delivered, um, that's going to happen. There's no point the public sector stepping in and actually competing with the private sector to deliver houses. Because let's not forget... While we seem to believe here, at least in the context of the debate one hears going on, that the only thing that sort of matters in the housing market is social and affordable housing. Well, there's a much, much bigger housing market out there. You know, we have first time buyers, a lot of them. Uh, We have people who are trading up, in other words, mover purchasers in the marketplace. Uh, We have, well, not many at the moment, but we have some investors in the market. So the housing market is much more than just social and affordable housing. Indeed, it's much more than just about first-time buyers. So I think we need to take a much more holistic view on this and look at the whole housing market and make sure that one intervention in one area does not result in um, negative outcomes in another area. So I don't see, to be honest, the benefit of the public sector stepping in at this stage. I think the public sector should now make sure that the private sector developers have the correct funding mechanism to allow them to develop, that the planning process is as conducive to quick delivery of housing as possible, and that um, basically stuff like the provision of services such as water from Irish Water, which is part of the state infrastructure is consistent with the delivery of housing. So I can see the private sector in the correct set of circumstances delivering what needs to be delivered here. And I just don't buy the notion that we would benefit from the public sector stepping in and trying to compete, uh, particularly given that the public sector, or at least local authorities, would be starting from a standing position you know, with absolutely no track record or skills in terms of housing delivery. 
Uh, there's a lot of good private sector developers out there that just need to be given the wherewithal to do it. The final point I would make is that the other thing the state should certainly do is to get every piece of state land available um, that's suitable for housing development that should be made available to private sector developers to develop. Yeah, I suspect that your comments will elicit a lot of reaction from listeners because different people have different views of the whole public versus private sector debate across the economy not just in housing and, and whether the extent to which government should be involved. Different people have different ideologies about this and, and sometimes the debate can get quite ridiculous. My view is that it's a pragmatic, very practical proposition, which is that whether or not in principle the public sector should or should not be involved, the fact is that for decades now it hasn't been involved in the actual physical building of accommodation and therefore it lacks the skill and experience necessary to do it. It could, of course, in principle acquire that knowledge, that ability, that skill to do it. But I think it would just take too long. The problem is so severe at the moment. You require solutions that are going to work in a reasonable time frame. You can't turn on housing overnight, but I don't think we can wait for the public sector to learn how to do it. So I, I, I tend to agree with you that we have to look to the private sector for solutions um, with some public sector involvement, su- such as the, the skill set the public sector has, and just create the playing field as level as it possibly can for whoever is out there willing and able with the knowledge and the skill set to, to build these houses and apartments that we obviously so badly need, not just in Ireland, but in, in many countries. All that said, Jim, that's all about what ifs and maybes and all those sorts of conditionalities. What do you think will actually happen now in two regards? How do you think the next few years will actually go for matching housing supply and demand in Ireland? What will, you know, I know it can only be a guess, But do you think that gap is going to be filled? Is there a probability that things are going to get better or will they just stay the same? Will they get worse? And nested within that, my second question, which I think will interest an awful lot of people, what's your best guess for actually what housing prices will do over the next few years? The easy questions, Yeah, the easy questions, Chris. Um, I I think I should point out at the outset that there is nothing more difficult to forecast than the future. My track record in terms of forecasting the housing market uh, wouldn't stand up to strong scrutiny. So I have to put in that caveat and health warning. But if, if you look at what the, the coming years are likely to look like, um, you know, I, I, I think the, the biggest problem in the market is clearly the lack of supply. Um, it is estimated by people like the ESRI um, and a lot of others, central bank and private sector forecasters, that we need at least 35,000 houses per annum out to at least the end of this decade to satisfy demand. Um, between 2011 and 2020, we averaged just over 11,300 houses per annum. So you can see, surprise, surprise, there is a massive demand supply imbalance in the marketplace. And unfortunately, uh, regardless of whether it's the public sector or the private sector gets responsibility for delivering the supply that is needed, um, it is going to take time. And I would say for the next two or three years, at least, um, assuming our economy, you know, continues to grow at a reasonable rate, assuming our demographics continue to evolve as they are evolving, um, and that is a growing population and a growing segment of the house buying part of that population. Of course, 
one of the real imponderables when you're forecasting future demographics for Ireland is the migration piece because uh, because of the nature of our country and our economy, we can be subject to massive swings in migratory flows. But assuming we continue to see net inward migration over the next few years, which I think we will, um, I think demand will continue to outstrip supply. And in that context, house prices are likely to continue rising. Rents are likely to continue rising. And coming into the next election, I suspect the incumbent government will be struggling very, very badly to justify its failure to deliver a solution to the housing crisis. And I, I said last week in the po- in the podcast, Chris, that I really feared that a lot of government interventions in our housing market to date have been deeply flawed. They've been driven by um, social media and by populist politics. So there's not a great history of these interventions. So I think the government needs to be very careful about what it does. And I think the most recent housing bill does contain some good stuff, but it also contains a lot of flawed stuff that could actually make the problem um, worse rather than better. Um, I also think we need to recognize, as I said earlier today, that it's not all about social housing and first-time buyers. There's a much broader market and you cannot look at one part of that market in isolation. You need to think differently about it. But my overall sense would be that the focus of policy should very much be on supply rather than trying to meddle with demand. Um, And I I guess finally, in answering to your in answer to your question, the key part of the question, you know, where do I expect the market to go over the coming years? Well, as I said, I think that demand supply imbalance will continue to drive it. So I see affordability, um, you know, just becoming a bigger and bigger issue for many people, despite government interventions. And underlying all of that, of course, is the fact that uh, we don't have very much competition in our mortgage market at the moment. In fact, the market is becoming more concentrated. I'm glad to see that a few small providers like Finance Ireland are getting more active in the market, but they are tiny in the overall scheme of things. So mortgage availability um, is going to be a big issue as well uh, because of the lack of competition in the system. So quite frankly, I, I wouldn't be terribly optimistic about the trajectory of the housing market over the last two or three years. Um, and I, and, I, and I, I, I suppose I couch that by saying that I don't regard incessant ongoing upward pressure on house prices as a positive thing. You know, it, it, it puts upward pressure on wages. It damages the competitiveness and attractiveness of the country. Um, it creates a significant financial burden for people, whether they're buying or renting. So I think anything that we can do to try and get house prices back down as quickly as possible in a controlled way has to be, in my view, very desirable. Yeah, I would tend to agree. I think that the next couple of years are going to be dominated by the macro economy rather than any of these micro interventions. And everything will depend during that time on whether the economy is growing strongly or not. That will depend on the world economy. And that in turn brings into all those other forces that are at play at the moment and that debate over whether interest rates are likely to go up or not to cure an inflation problem, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast 
I think house price inflation, given all of the things that we're talking about at the moment, must at some point sow the seeds of its own demise. Because if mortgage availability is the issue, if funding is the issue at, at existing levels of interest rates, let alone at higher levels of interest rates, eventually people will, everybody, virtually everybody will be priced out of the market. No matter, you know, even if you do have lots of inward migration prices, there is a level of prices at which even the migrants won't be able to afford or won't be able to get funded. I wouldn't be gung ho about the ability of the of the market to just generate ever upwards uh, property price inflation. I do think that there is there is a level beyond which people won't be able to afford houses. So it, it becomes self-correcting. And I've no idea where that is. But my sense of it, given all that we've been talking about, and given what we see about the the way in which people are being priced out, once you've priced enough people out of the housing market, Prices, by definition, can't go up anymore. But once you start talking about higher interest rates, then I think we're into a different ball game, and then then you might actually see what we're hoping for, which is that house prices do fall. Because I think everybody agrees that house prices, in real terms, at the very least, do need to come down. And that raises the the, the broader issue of inflation. And I wanted to read out another response to one of the things that we talked about last week, and indeed one of the things that I wrote about in a piece on the Substack site. And this uh, message was from Ross McCarthy, the chairman of ISME, in which he was asking about inflation. And And I'll quote him. Do you think the circular effects of inflation are being taken into account adequately? It's hard to control once it gets going. The interplay between demands for higher wages, the granting of higher wages, the pressure on prices can have strong circular dynamic. I worry that we take too much for granted and underestimate the dynamism that can trigger a cyclical effect. That's what Ross had to say. And I think those points were very well made. And it loops back into our housing discussion because if inflation in general is going to become a problem, not just housing inflation, then we do get that interest rate problem, which will just turn off the affordability taps. The inflation thing is a very live debate in financial markets and economic circles. And that process that he talked about and the way in which inflation can become self-fulfilling I'm very conscious of that. I talked about last week about the price of a pint in London. And I've actually found a pub, a very ordinary pub, actually, um, not a, a, a fancy wine bar or nightclub or anything like that, where a pint costs seven quid, not for a fancy craft beer, but just for an ordinary pint. I think that you know, I can't do the mental arithmetic right now, but that must be pushing eight euros, which, if you think about it, is, is, is extraordinary. And that's probably 15 percent up. Or, or at least 15% up on where the price of a pint was before we went into lockdown. I was out and about in London again over the weekend and uh, went to my favourite Chinatown cheap and cheerful Chinese restaurant, great quality food at low prices for years, this, this place that I frequent. And I was shocked by how much their prices had gone up. They, they are still cheapish and cheerful, still very cheerful, but they're no longer cheap. And so anecdotally, I'm seeing all sorts of inflation out there. What I, of course, can't get my head around is whether this is a one-off thing or a sustained thing. If it's sustained, then we're in trouble with regard interest rates because it means that these very low level of interest rates are going to have to go up much sooner than, than we think. As we have said before, there's lots of evidence from commodity prices. There are supply bottlenecks all over the place. And we don't know whether these supply bottlenecks that are pushing prices of things like wood, iron ore and other commodities up are going to be sustained. We're actually today watching them go down a bit. There's been some news out of China 
that have pushed some of these prices back down again. But they're still at pretty elevated levels compared to where they were a year ago. The issue for me has always been about the labour market, which is where it's getting really interesting. Here in the UK, I think that just over the last couple of weeks, and this is all anecdotal, of course, is there's very little data in the aggregate to back this up, but tons of anecdotes that the labour market is much, much tighter than we thought it was for, for a number of reasons. First of all, there's plenty of anecdotes that the economy as a whole, since the lockdown effectively ended only a week ago, has taken off like a rocket. Everywhere is full. People are out spending, particularly in the hospitality and entertainment industries. People are finding it very hard to find the necessary workers. There's plenty of stories coming out of London restaurants and bars, for example, where existing employees are being offered money to find somebody else to come and work here because we can't find the workers. If you've been in one of these places recently, like I have, you can see that they're short-staffed. There are stories out from employment agencies that a few weeks ago, they had very few vacancies on their books. And all of a sudden, there are thousands of vacancies on their books. And more generally, there's a picture beginning to emerge. Again, I admit this is more anecdote than hard data, that workers in many key sectors are in the wrong place. In London, I can attest to the fact that a lot of these people that used to work in bars and restaurants seem to have gone home, where home isn't London. It could be elsewhere in the UK. They could have been EU workers that have gone home or both. So that there is a supply bottleneck of workers there. We can see it in the shipping industry. Ships are in the wrong place. There's a shortage of containers. All these sorts of things are going on that are driving prices up. Now, there's a competition for economic metaphors going on at the moment. I think I used in a podcast last week, the metaphor of a racing car that had been put in a garage for a year, brought out, and the accelerator being tapped at a, bit, a wee bit too hard and smoke coming from the tires as the rubber hits the road. And the smoke is the inflation and the car itself, if you like, is the economy. And the question is whether that smoke dissipates very quickly or whether the car races off so fast that it veers out of control and hits the wall where the wall is inflation. Martin Sanbu, one of my favourite economics writers of the moment, he writes for the FT, brilliant articles, uh, two or three a week, quite remarkable how he does it uses a different metaphor, and he calls it the tomato ketchup economy. In what's, what's happening, he says, is that with tomato ketchup is being squeezed out of the bottle. It's blocked in, in the neck of the bottle. The bottle is being hit hard, and the tomato ketchup is splurging out, and that's what we're seeing as inflation. But once it's out, it's out. It's, it's a one-off. You don't have to do it again. It flows naturally then and, and smoothly. And then there's nothing to see here, nothing to worry about other than an initial surge of tomato ketchup, an initial surge of prices, but there's nothing sustained. And he goes on to say that once all of this is out of the way, all of those disinflationary forces that we were talking about for years before the pandemic will once again come to the fore. And in fact, there's just as likely to be disinflation out there once this is over, as there is to be inflation. You cite some interesting anecdotal evidence. Um, I guess my own experience in Dublin, um, as the reopening is starting, my son uh, went to a local barber on Saturday and prices are about 25% higher than they were the last time they were open. So that's one piece of evidence suggesting, you know, in, in catch up um, inflationary pressures in the system. On the other hand, and I mentioned a few weeks back about my, my wife's hair. 
Uh, she got it done the week before last, and the prices she was charged exactly the same as um, you know pre pre lockdown. So no price pressures there. So there's there's a mixed picture, but I suppose being serious about it, um, there is certainly a sense. Um, in the hospitality sector as it gradually reopens and in some of the sectors that have been most adversely affected like personal services you know there will be an attempt made to try and catch up um, and make up for some of the revenues and business that has been lost over the last 14 months I think there's a natural instinct there and we hear a lot of talk about the prices that people are being charged and quoted for hotels around the country when they reopen after the 2nd or 3rd of June. So there, there's certainly, um, wh- whether it's the, the catch-up or, or whatever, but there is certainly a sense out there that there's going to be a significant um, increase in the price of a lot of things over the coming months as we reopen. Uh, you mentioned commodity prices bubbling away in the background. Um, oil prices are up probably, I think yesterday, they were up almost 80% on a year ago. That's obviously feeding into uh, consumer prices and costs of doing business and so on. Um, House building prices, and this ties back into the housing piece we were talking about earlier, uh, the cost of inputs to housing construction have increased dramatically over the last three or four months, largely because of supply bottlenecks. And then in the labor market, definitely we are seeing pressures on the labor market. And it's, it's kind of interesting. I remember... Back in February 2020, um, a presentation I did just before COVID became an issue that we recognized as an issue, um, suggesting that one of the biggest challenges for employers over the next couple of years would be the recruitment and retention of workers. And in other words, businesses would be forced to pay up to recruit and retain workers in an economy that was approaching full employment. And and here we are 14 months later, um, lots of people still either unemployed or in receipt of the pandemic unemployment payment. But I stand by those sorts of assertions because, um, as you know, and as we've discussed many times, the Irish economy has been very much a dual economy and a dual workforce over the last 14 months. Many sectors of the economy where those labour shortages were going to become most acute have done very well over the last um, 12 or 14 months. So they will still face these wage pressures. Um, And then what you mentioned for the hospitality sector in the UK, I think it's going to be exactly the same here. I'm hearing that employers in hotels, restaurants, pubs, etc. are struggling to rehire staff again um, in anticipation of reopening. And, And certainly there's upward pressure on wages. And what's not helping that, of course, is the fact that the pandemic unemployment payment, the PUP, is still being paid. So for a lot of workers, um, going back to work doesn't make a lot of financial sense while the state is still subsidizing via the PUP. So there's, there's a lot of stuff at play here. But I, I definitely think, you know, for the next six to 12 months, inflation is going to be an issue in the system. And reflecting back on what Ross McCarthy said in those comments, you know, it it does have a circular effect. It does feed into wages. It is difficult to break the spiral. And as you know, and I guess this is what standard economics would teach you, that once inflation expectations get built into the system, it's very difficult to break that cycle. So, uh, but 
having said all of that, um, you know, a lot of people are still very relaxed about it. You 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 cite uh, what Martin Sandbo was saying in the Financial Times today. Uh, Philip Lane was in speaking in Dublin last week. I'm not sure if he was here or not, but he was very relaxed about the inflation outlook and, and basically said that this sort of catch up that's happening on the price side is not indicative of a turnaround in the inflationary um, environment. The, the US Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, you know, that, that seems to be uh, the common belief at the moment. But as we know, um, central bankers have in the past got it notoriously wrong. I mean, months in the a month or two before the subprime crisis um, erupted in the United States, the Federal Reserve was still quite relaxed about it as a threat to the financial stability of the US financial system. And lo and behold, we saw what happened. So just because central bankers are saying these things doesn't mean they're wrong, number one. Secondly, it doesn't mean they cannot suddenly change their mind and you know react aggressively in the face of what they might perceive as a changed threat. So we need to be very, very careful about it. But I would also notice out there at the moment, and it's probably reflecting how I feel myself at the moment, that consumers are not very price conscious at the moment. Uh, you know, they are so excited at the prospect of being able to buy stuff again, that price for many people, okay, not for everybody, but for many people, price is quite irrelevant at the moment. They just will pay whatever they have to pay to get what they want to make up for what they've missed out for, for the last 14 months. So that definitely marks sort of a changed psychological attitude towards prices at the moment. Yeah, the point you make there about inflation expectations, I think, is is the important one. It's, it's the same point that Ross made, which is that if inflationary psychology does get embedded, then we're in trouble. Expectations being an innately psychological phenomenon, they, it can and does happen. It certainly happened in the past. But we also know what happens next. If that does happen, if inflation expectations do become embedded in the system so that we do get something akin to a wage price spiral, even if it's a mini one, we know what will happen next. And that's that interest rates will go up. And that's the shock that, that could hit the housing market and indeed many asset markets over the next couple of years. The central banks are making a big bet that it is the tomato ketchup economy, as Sanbu said, that all of these things that we're talking about are one-offs, that they won't lead to expectations rising, becoming embedded in the system, and that we won't get the wage price spiral. The simple fact is that nobody knows. The other simple fact is that it's a big bet by central banks that it is a one-off, that it is the tomato ketchup economy, and that things will be this by this time next year, things will have settled down. We don't know, as I say, and frankly, despite the, the certainty with which so many people seem to express opinions in this regard on both sides, um, nobody knows. And we, we, we literally have to wait and see. But what we do know is that if we're still talking about this, in this fashion next year, and all of those charts that we could draw about inflation expectations, because we can measure this in reasonably precise ways from all sorts of angles. If those charts have shown in actual inflation and inflation expectations have gone up in a material sustained way, say this time next year, maybe even earlier, then interest rates are going to be a lot higher. And your house price problem in Ireland isn't going to be what you think it is. And I suspect things like equity markets will have gone through at the very least a period of turbulence. And some stock markets could be a lot lower than they are now. So it's a big bet. 
it's something that we're going to have to keep returning to and keep a very close eye on. But we've run up against our usual time barrier, Jim. Lots more we could have talked about. We haven't done today our usual COVID corner, so we're going to have to leave that one till next time. But there are lots of things to talk about there, not least the imminent announcement. I believe it's the end of the week about the next phase of Ireland's reopening. So I think that that can wait for the next podcast. So all the best, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics, and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to have you on board again very soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.